Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. care how Protestant theologians and philosophers view a man generally regarded as of interest primarily to Catholic and as a pillar of Catholic kingping? Absolutely. Why? Because much of what has made our modern world in terms of law, philosophy, and ethics comes from Thomas Aquinas, 1225 to 1274. How would we benefit from reading a book about Aquinas by a noted scholar who has been a Protestant but who is now a Catholic? That is what we are going to find out in this interview with Francis J. Beckwith about his 2019 book, Never Doubt Thomas, the Catholic Aquinas as Evangelical and Protestant. The book is not dry as dust theology. It is approachable and often quite funny, even as it, even as it tackles some arcane subject matter, for example, faith, works, and justification. Beckwith engagingly critiques some of the arguments of recent years against natural law theory, which is more relevant than many of us have realized and which forms some of the background of the soul-searching and debate on the right over recent Supreme Court decisions by supposedly conservative justices. Beckwith examines the contention of many Protestant thinkers that the whole idea of natural law that flowed from Aquinas is a distraction from the truly important goal of engagement with the scriptures and reliance on divine revelation. The book is intended for educated general readers who want to understand why so many Protestant thinkers have been so eager to claim Aquinas as a proto-Protestant, even though he lived centuries before Luther, and what, according to Beckwith, they get so wrong about him, even as they admire him. Among other topics Beckwith addresses in this little volume are the centuries-old debate over whether Christians, Jews, and Muslims worship the same God, and the evergreen topic of purgatory. And for those who want to wade into the waters of the decades-long battle between Darwinists and atheists on the one side, and those who adhere to the theory of intelligence design on the other, there is even a chapter on that. Who would have thought that a medieval religious scholar would still be annoying some scholars <laughs> and gendering devotion in others? All these centuries later, Francis J. Beckwith tells us why. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Book Network. I'm talking today with Francis J. Beckwith, author of the 2019 book, Never Doubt Thomas, the Catholic Aquinas as Evangelical and Protestant. Thank you for joining us today, Frank. It is great to be here. Thank you. I'm delighted. Let's start with the title of your book, and I'll get a little contentious here. Let's dissect, let's dissect it word by word. This is a long question. You don't say, for instance, simply Aquinas as evangelical and Protestant, but the Catholic Aquinas as evangelical and Protestant. Doesn't that create a roadblock for non-Catholic readers in that they might say, well, if Aquinas is Catholic, he's of no use to me. Alternatively, do you mean by the wording, the Catholic Aquinas, that there are aspects of Aquinas that are not specifically Catholic, but that you want in your book to focus on the aspects of his thought that are definitely Catholic, and that you believe that those aspects of a thought non-Catholics need to grasp so as to better understand the commonalities between Catholicism and Protestantism? Or are you saying that though a Catholic, Aquinas was in many ways a proto-Protestant? And to make this question even longer, could you tell us what you mean by evangelical after all, not all Protestants are evangelicals. As you can see, terminology is pretty key here. Literary. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I guess I can't answer that yes or no. <laughs> I, uh, you know, uh, that's actually a very Thomistic thing that you did, by the way. You opened up with objections, which is what Aquinas does in the Summa Theologica. He begins with questions and then uh, then says his spiel and then responds to the objections, uh, which is an old medieval way of dealing with uh, issues that are contested. So, so yeah, the title. Uh, the, the real simple, quick answer is that it was my publisher's idea, <laughs> the title, uh, but there, there, there's a logic behind it. So the subtitle is, is supposed to be ironic in this sense. Uh, obviously, Aquinas is Catholic, uh, and that is true enough. But the, uh, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting in the rest of the uh, subtitle is that, in a way, those that claim Aquinas who are evangelical, some of them, I think, get Aquinas wrong. And so uh, they want to say that Aquinas is really a kind of uh, Paleo-Lutheran. But I want to say, no, he's actually a Council of Trent Catholic. (laughs) On the other hand, though, there are those that say, you know, that Aquinas is so Catholic that he believes X, Y, and Z about things like natural law, and he has nothing in common with what we evangelical Protestants believe and have learned from the great separation that occurred at the Reformation. I want to say to them, actually, Aquinas is closer to you than you think. So there's, there's, there's two different sets of folks that I'm dealing with in the book. There's the folks that, that want to claim Aquinas, and I... I I think that's wonderful, but I think that they uh, they get him wrong in some ways. Uh, I want to say the other folks that want to distance themselves from Aquinas actually get him wrong as well. Mm. Uh, so, so that, that that's the you know that's what I'm suggesting in the subtitle. Now, as far as the definition of of terms, what do I mean by uh, an evangelical? Uh, that's as you probably would guess a contested question. Uh, here, I have in mind. Uh, mostly, although not entirely, uh, American conservative Protestants that really come of age and, uh, in the 1940s, uh, in the, in the United, mostly in the United States, although there are, there are those that, uh, you could say are evangelicals who are mostly out of the, you know, Anglo- uh, Anglican world, uh, they 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 want to separate. The, they want to do two things. The, the um, uh, these ev- the, these self described evangelicals. They want to sort of separate themselves or distance themselves from kind of American fundamentalism that arises in the early twentieth century. That is most associated with certain important historical events like the Scopes trial or the uh, the great uh, changes that occurred in mainline Protestant seminaries, the fights between the modernists and the fundamentalists. They want to, they want to say, we're, we're not fundamentalists like that. We want to engage critical scholarship. We want to engage culture. We don't want to separate. On the other hand, they want to say, we're not modernists either. <laughs> we hold to a very high view of scripture. And so they want to, they want to be, they want to sort of be true to what they think is the kind of the, the classical Protestant view of faith 
uh, but at the same time, they, they don't want to associate, they, they want to be sort of open-minded engagers with culture that uh, at the same time, they want to resist sort of the separationism of, of, uh, of the fundamentalists. Uh, so that's where, that's where I, I think of evangelical Protestants. They t- typically are associated with certain types of institutions like Wheaton College in, in Wheaton, Illinois, um, uh, to a lesser extent, Biola University in Southern California, Christian, the, the, the magazine Christianity Today. Uh, and there was actually another magazine that, that uh, was formed around the same time called Eternity Magazine, which is actually now out of print, which really teaches a lesson. If you're going to name, you're going to create a name for a magazine called Eternity, it better not go out of print, right? Because, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so, so that's what, that's who I'm, I'm, I, that's what I mean by, in the book as, as evangelical Protestants. I, I understand not all Protestants are evangelicals. In fact, I engage uh, very briefly. Um, I mentioned Karl Barth in, in one of the chapters, and I think he would, you know, at least uh, culturally and ecclesially, be a Protestant who would not associate with what we would today call evangelicals. Although he had he's had tremendous influence on the theological formation of many evangelicals. So, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say you mentioned Christianity Today, and that's actually gotten fairly liberal in recent years, hasn't it? Or it has. Uh, one of the things that's happened with evangelicalism, uh, I think, over the at least the past thirty or forty years, is a lot of evangelicals uh, who, let's say, grew up in kind of Bible churches or more rural parts of the country, who are interested in the academic life. Uh, you know, go they they do their undergraduate work at sort of typical evangelical schools like Wheaton and Biola, Westmont, and, and other such places. Then they go off and they get their doctorates at places like University of Chicago, uh, Harvard, Yale, uh, Catholic schools like Notre Dame and Fordham. And they wind up there kind of appropriating into their evangelical worldview those things that they've discovered that they think are very helpful to understanding their faith, not realizing that has actually transformed their faith, or at least not really transformed it, as I may have too strong a word, but changed it a bit. And so it's it's not unusual today, as I, I note in the book, to find evangelicals that consider themselves followers of Thomas Aquinas. Fifty years ago, that would have been unheard of. Hmm. And on the other hand, you find certain evangelicals, you mentioned kind of the liberalization of Christianity today, uh, you know, writers and thinkers uh, in that orbit willing to entertain ideas uh, such as certain aspects of postmodernism or critical theory that would have been uh, anathema uh, it, as maybe 20 or 30 years ago. So I, I do think that, uh, that what you see is a phenomenon uh, that's ironically a consequence of evangelicalism's desire to engage culture, not realizing that it would actually change evangelicalism. Mm. That's well. That's that's very helpful because we'll get back to the, the the Protestants. I just want to give the listeners a flavor of what, of some of the issues involved. Um, getting back to the Catholic the Catholic issue in your in the forward to your book, which is written by a, a Catholic. Bishop, I believe, or a priest. Uh, yeah, Dominican priest, Father Thomas Joseph White. Thank you. And he mentions he mentions in the book uh, in the, in his foreword uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth in a famous encyclical of eighteen seventy nine 
that led to what is known as the Thomistic Revival. And for those of us who are not Catholic, could you please tell us what an encyclical is and what led to this one and what its impact was? Yeah, the encyclical is a document issued under the name of the Pope, who's ever the Pope at the time. It is uh, a teaching instrument. It's usually addressed uh, to the bishops of the church. And over the years, though, it's it's kind of developed to where it's not only issued to the bishops of the church, but also uh, to um, the you know, sometimes it'll say the world at large or, or you know, uh, the people of the church or, or, or language along those lines. And it's considered to be authoritative teaching uh, of the papacy, uh, but it's not considered to be infallible teaching. So Catholics are required to obey it and to assent to it. Uh, but it doesn't mean that Catholics can't, let's say, raise questions about it. Uh, so yes, Pope Leo is, uh, is one of the, uh, is sort of the beginning of the kind of modern era of what is called Catholic social thought, uh, which arises soon after the demise of the, uh, papal states, which, uh, occurs at the creation of what is called modern day Italy. And so basically the Catholic church up until, the early 20th century had no actual identifiable state uh, as it has now at a very small Vatican city. Uh, but when it lost the papal states, everything was turned over or was taken over by Italy. And so ironically, when the, when the, when the Catholic church loses its uh, kind of political sovereignty, uh, it kind of changes the way the papacy thinks about its role in the world and it becomes much more of a spiritual papacy and less of a political one, although the encyclicals themselves involve typically uh, comments and teachings about political and social issues, but not from the vantage point of a political sovereign, like the, let's say the president of the United States or the prime minister of, of, of England, uh, but as the spiritual head of the Catholic Church. And so it's the beginning of, of, of what we today see quite often, uh, encyclicals by different uh, uh, holders of the, of the papacy. Well, and this one was significant because it was about, specifically about reviving the thought of Thomas Aquinas. Is that correct? Th th that is correct. Uh, it was uh, issued in 1879, and uh, some of your listeners may know this, but much of Catholic theology is formulated, <clears throat> excuse me, is formulated in the categories and language of Thomas Aquinas. So, for example, after the or during the Council of Trent, a, many of the responses to uh, Protestant challenges to Catholic thought are framed in the language of Aquinas. Uh, but what happens uh, as we enter the time of the Enlightenment, 18th century, 19th century, uh, there are challenges to Aquinas's way of looking at things, not only outside the church, but within the church itself. And so Leo, by issuing this encyclical, is calling on the church to kind of reinvigorate its understanding of Aquinas. And uh, at the time, there were very few 
uh, translations of Aquinas into the vernacular languages. Uh, after Leo issues this encyclical, there is uh, throughout the world translations of Aquinas uh, in the early 20th century, 1920, the Dominican fathers uh, translate, uh, I think these were the, I think the ones in, in the United Kingdom at Blackfriars translate the entire Summa Theologica into English, and it becomes accessible to more people who don't know Latin, which is what Aquinas wrote in. Um, so yeah, much of what, uh, much of the interest of Aquinas today, uh, I think can be traced back to, uh, Leo's encyclical. Well, apropos of what Aquinas has to say to all Christians, and you write in the book that, in particular, the story of creation, fall, and redemption, and a proper understanding of Aquinas' thought will benefit Protestants as well as Catholics on, that, on those particular topics. And while you're at it, could you say that, could you address what people who are not religious at all can benefit by reading your book? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that, that Aquinas, uh, I think, conveys for those who have never, let's say, who are not religious, who are, have never had an interest in reading Thomas Aquinas, it gives you an insight into way in which people thought about theology and the other disciplines that we typically associate with university life. So for Aquinas, philosophy and theology uh, work together. Um, his understanding of the way in which we look at nature uh, is infused with his understanding of the way in which God uh, creates and acts in nature. I mean, today, for example, and this is something that I deal with extensively in the chapter on creation and intelligent design, there's this tendency uh, to think of, of God as a kind of another object in the universe that we kind of plug in when we can't explain anything, a kind of God of the gaps. But Aquinas doesn't think that way at all about God. Uh, he thinks nature has its own laws, its own, uh, that the, the particular things in nature, whether they're dogs or cats or planets or human beings, uh, uh, have, their, have their own natures and they, they do certain things and that we don't need God to explain ordinary activities in nature. However, we do need God to explain why there's such a thing as natures at all. <laughs> and so when you read Aquinas, especially if, if one is not a religious believer, I think the thing that, that stands out is how seamlessly he simply connects his theological beliefs with everything else uh, that he believes about the world. And there's a kind of, um, uh, I, I don't know if, there's a, if I should coin a new term here, but there's a kind of Go for uh, it. I like that. It's a kind of, I guess, it, it's, it's theology for grown-ups. <laughs> you know, so it's not like, you know, there's a tendency today, we, we think of, uh, this is something maybe that's part of popular culture or the way in which, let's say, kind of popular religion is communicated. We think of religion as a kind of, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not serious. It's not about serious stuff. And so... It's not, demand, it's not demanding, personally that, demanding. That's right. So you actually see it, and in, in, you know, in the way in which uh, the debates that are going on about uh, uh, COVID nineteen and restrictions on group meetings, right? So, so you'll have some states where governors will say that uh, only essential services will be permitted, right? So, or businesses that have or or involved with essential services, like um, you know. 
grocery stores and stores, abortion clinics. Yeah. So, 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 so you, so that you'll have religious believers say, well, I think belief in, I I think going to church is essential in a Mm -hmm. sense. Right. So, uh, but if somebody doesn't sort of can't really understand that they think, well, wait a second, you just watch church on zoom. Right. It's it's just not, you know, and, and so for them, it's like religion is a hobby. And I think for, when you read Aquinas, you realize, wow, this is for this is for grownups. He's talking about serious stuff. He talks about uh, you know detailed questions about when is it right to act in a way that results in the death of another human being. Mm. You know, stuff that actually, if 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 you've ever gone to law school, I, I have a I have a legal background. I find it amazing that Aquinas deals with questions that that I have found that I found in law school that that cover things like tort law and contract law, you know, real serious stuff. What is it? When is a person culpable for the consequences of their actions? Um, do you have to intend the end of your action? Or if you simply foresee a bad thing, are you culpable? Right. I mean, these are, these are kind of the kind of questions that are, that are serious questions that we deal with all the time. And these are addressed in the context of a massive, work in theology uh, called the Summa Theologica, which is about 5,000 pages uh, mm. that Aquinas uh, wrote. So, yeah, I, I think that um, uh, the other thing that stands out about Aquinas is, uh, and I think it's along, again, along the lines of, of theology for grownups, is that he, that God for Aquinas is not as often depicted in maybe the uh, literature of the those guys called the new atheist, God is in a sort of grandfather in the sky. You know, it's, he actually thinks God is in some ways incomprehensible. And the thing that also stands out when you read Aquinas is that he's willing to admit there are just things we don't know. <laughs> and that's okay. Uh, well, well, apropos of that, in term, is he still taught in introductory, introductory philosophy courses, and do secular philosophers teach him at all, or do they just give him a five minutes of, you know, a quick quick overview, and then they skip ahead to, to secular philosophers, or is he regarded as a philosopher? Oh, he's regarded as a philosopher. There are, uh, I think, virtually every intro to philosophy textbook that deals with the existence of God will have some excerpt from Aquinas. Uh, I've got several friends who are um, Aquinas scholars who I would, who would not identify as religious believers at all, who are, who think Aquinas has important things to say. So yeah, he's, I, I think that uh, if you were to ask a typical philosopher, Aquinas would at least be in the top 10 for most philosophers. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Even now, even now. So they don't, they don't sort of fence him off to the, 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 the theologians then. I think some, there are going to be some that do that, but if if uh, if you sort of had to compile a list of of the most influential philosophers in history, uh, and you were to ask a typical philosopher, I think they would you know reel off Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, uh, Hume, Kant. Uh, you'd have to put Aquinas in there. Uh, maybe Augustine would make it in for some people, uh, but yeah, I mean he's considered to be one of the uh, most important philosophers. It's not to say that uh, that that you have any sizable number of philosophers who think he's right. 
there's probably a minority that believe he's clearly a minority, a very small minority who would consider themselves Thomists, but they still uh, carry a lot of weight in the world of philosophy. And I think partly because of the role that Aquinas has played uh, in Catholic theology. And of course, Catholicism is the largest, uh, you know, largest Christian group and uh, in the world. And obviously the uh, whoever is the Pope has a tremendous influence on international politics and, and all sorts of other things. So I think that Aquinas simply can't be ignored. Has there ever been a Pope who was a Dominican? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure no. I know we've had our first Jesuit Pope, which is <laughs> Pope well, That's Francis. why I was asking. I was just curious. So. No, I don't think so. And, and I, I suspect, uh, you know, there's a kind of rivalry between the Dominicans and the Jesuits. So uh, the D- Dominicans are probably sore about this, that uh, the first, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that the Jesuits beat them to it. Uh, well, I was going to ask you that, that it is in your book, you mentioned that obviously that Aquinas was a Dominican. And for those of us who are not Catholic and don't know about the Catholic orders, why, why was it significant? And, and he seems to be just absolutely determined to become a Dominican and his family even opposed that. And I, I would like to know why they opposed it. I think it was for reasons of power, that it wasn't a powerful order, I guess, but they even put him under a sort of, they abducted him and put him under house arrest. Is that correct? That, that's correct. So, Aquinas uh, grew up in a kind of semi-aristocratic family who worked for uh, Frederick II, who uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I forget his official title, but he uh, he was, I, I think, king of Sicily, if I'm not mistaken, or Naples. Uh, uh, he uh, so, Aquinas, so Aquinas. Uh, you know, grew up in this kind of semi-aristocratic family. He he wanted, uh, he had a desire from a, as being from being a young child to to he was drawn to a kind of life to dedicate it to God. His family wanted him to become a, a Benedictine, uh, that is, uh, a uh, to be an abbot in uh, in a monastery which was a very prestigious thing, but the friend, there were two groups of two orders of priests that arose uh, several decades before Aquinas was born, the Franciscans and the Dominicans. Uh, Franciscans was founded by Francis of Assisi and the Dominicans founded by St. Dominic. And they were both what are called mendicant orders. They were beggars. Uh, but unlike the old orders that uh, resided in monasteries that they were sort of isolated from the general public. The mendicant orders believed they had a calling to live in poverty, uh, to have to take a vow of poverty, but to be among the people, kind of in the rough and tumble of city life. And he was drawn to this. But you know, the Franciscans and the Dominicans were, you know, kind of looked down upon by you know, kind of upper middle class or aristocratic. Catholics, you know, who would want to be a you know Dominican or a Franciscan? This is not what what our children would would join if they were to join a religious order. But Aquinas was drawn to this, and uh, yes, his his brother and several of his friends abducted him and put him in a castle, <laughs> uh, kind of on a house arrest, try to convince him to change his mind. In fact, there's a kind of I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. Um, he uh, his, uh, his they apparently put a prostitute in there to try to seduce him, and he fought fought her off 
uh, you know, I, this is, I don't know if it's trivial. You, you, you've, I don't think I actually include that story in, 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 in the uh, brief bio of Aquinas in, in, in the book because I, I, I just wasn't sure if it was 100% true. I mean, it's one of those things you read everywhere, but it's difficult to really track down. And I did find a couple of authors that say that it may be apocryphal. Well, a little, uh, color, little color never hurts. That's right. But I'd like to ask in terms of the Dominicans, was he drawn to, was Aquinas drawn to them? Did they already at that point, or did he establish for them a, a, a reputation for being serious scholars? Was he, did he create that for them or was it, was it a preexisting condition of attribute that, that he just, and also he was recognized apparently immediately as a singularly brilliant young man. Right? Yes. That's right. No, they, they were known for scholarship. Uh, you know, uh, they were, uh, in some ways, um, you know, the Dominicans, they, they, they would have, they held academic appointments at, at, at different institutions throughout, uh, what at that time was, uh, what would have been the Roman empire, although it didn't really exist at the time. Uh, but you know, the old Roman empire, they had, they held appointments at a variety of different universities. Uh, but in, but Aquinas winds up, uh, because of his uh, legendary intelligence and uh, incredible productivity, he enhances the reputation that they already have. Mm. Okay, it's kind of like Robert George at Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I wanted to ask if, 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 if getting to the... the um, um, actual meat of his thought of, of Thomas Aquinas's thought. You're right. Very helpfully in the book. If St. Thomas Aquinas is known for anything, it is his belief that human beings have the capacity to know by their natural reason, apart from the deliverances of scripture or ecclesial authority, that God exists and that there is a natural moral law. Could you please tell us what is meant by the term unaided reason and how that relates to Aquinas? I've never, I've always had trouble understanding unaided reason. So unaided reason, what I mean by that is the it's the view that uh, that one can come to believe in God without relying on what religious believers would call sacred scripture. So, for example, um, supposing you know I'm reflecting on on the universe and how things came to be, and I th- I think to myself, I it seems to me that that the universe uh, exhibits certain uh, levels of complexity. Uh, it, it couldn't have always existed. Uh, and I conclude, let's say that therefore there must exist a being that has always existed that doesn't depend on its existence on anything else. And I conclude that this is God, right? Now, uh, and I can actually discover some things about God. So, uh, I, I can, I, let's say I reflect on this argument and I think, well, um, this being that created the universe, uh, is it the sort of thing that depends on something else for its existence? Well, it couldn't because we'd have the same problem with this being as we would with the universe, right? So there has to, and since we can't have an infinite regress of causes, uh, there has to be a kind of first cause of all being. And Supposing somebody comes up with an argument like that. In fact, there have been philosophers like Aristotle 
and, and Plato who have concluded that there is a kind of first cause of existence. And typically religious believers would call that being God. That's, uh, that would be knowing God through or knowing about God through unaided reason. That is, it's just simply your own thoughts, your own arguments without appealing to something that one believes is special revelation. So in the way Thomas thinks, he believes that one could come to the conclusion through unaided reason that there exists a first cause, an eternal, unchanging creator of all that exists. But, and that's pretty much it. You can maybe conclude that this being is un, eternal, unchanging, uh, and so forth. But as far as particular things about God that, let's say, Christians believe, that Jesus of Nazareth is God's son, that he died for our sins, that God is a trinity, this we cannot know through unaided reason. This we can only know when God acts in history. And so for Aquinas, he wants to make a distinction between those things that we can know by faith, and those are the things that are known through what he believes is special revelation, and those things that we can know by reason. And it turns out for Aquinas, those things that we can know by reason uh, can overlap what we know by faith. But, a re- but somebody who actually comes to faith doesn't come to faith through their reason. <laughs> they come to faith through the grace of God. So you can actually have a case uh, for Aquinas. I'd say somebody who uh, says, I believe God exists. I think the universe simply can't explain itself. But it's not technically a believer who has faith. Uh, the person just simply believes in God as a result of their rational faculties. That is, they come to a conclusion based on certain arguments. But they may later, let's say, uh, come to faith. They may have a conversion experience. And when that conversion experience occurs, they don't, uh, uh, they don't, reject what they came to know through reason. They just simply now have a different relationship to that belief. And, and that is uh, one of faith. Well, I was going to, I was going to ask that question in your, in your book, you use the terms that uh, the preambles of faith and the articles of faith. And I wanted to ask, are those term, are those terms Aquinas' own particular formulation or did they precede him? No, those are his. Those are his. Uh, now, the term "articles of faith," uh, uh, you can find those deep in Christian church history. Uh, I'm not sure about the preambles of faith. My my uh, my own reading is that Aquinas is the is the first person to coin coin that phrase. Uh, although I could be wrong about that. But preambles of faith correspond to those things that we can know through reason. And whereas the articles of faith are those things that we can only know through uh, special revelation. Well, somewhat connected to that is also what's what is inherent in morality. And you, I guess because you're I mean, you're helping me understand. These are pretty abstruse concepts for people yeah. who are for average people such as me, which is one of the reasons I wanted to interview you. Um, could you discuss the relationship, according to Aquinas, between natural law and divine law? Yes. Yeah, so natural law is simply refers to those uh, beliefs that we hold about how human beings ought to act. And it's called natural because 
it appeals to those inclinations that human beings have toward those things that are good. So what what I mean by an inclination, that can be really confusing for modern folks because we usually think of inclinations as things like instincts. But for Aquinas, an inclination is something that has a kind of order to it. So for example, human beings are inclined with an inclination to value life, right? So to give an ex- I'll give you an example that I use in my class to my students. I, 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 tell my, I, I ask my students, um, do you think, um, uh, supposing somebody were to come up to you and say, uh, or supposing you were to accuse someone of being ignorant, uh, and uh, they were to respond to you by saying, that's, I don't care. I just enjoy being ignorant. <laughs> and you would say, you would think that was appalling. Why would you think that's appalling? Because you believe that your mind is ordered towards knowledge. And to sort of intentionally interfere with that end is actually to harm yourself. And, and we believe this about life as well. So supposing you hear about somebody that takes their own life. And it's somebody, let's say, that's, that you know and you're sad about it. The first question that usually someone asks is, why? Why did they do it? Right? Was the person depressed? You, you, you always want to find out why they did it. But if you, let's say, were told by a friend that you saw, let's say, your in-common friend Bob today, you wouldn't ask why he's alive. <laughs> <laughs> Right, because you realize that that's a good to which we're ordered, and it wouldn't be odd <laughs> that Bob wants to be alive, mm-hmm. right? And we don't think it's that Bob just wants to be alive because he wants it. Because if Bob had, let's say, a desire not to be alive, we would ask him to justify it. Right? We'd say, "Well, why do you feel that way, Bob?" Because we think it's not something to which he is ordered. Right by nature, so we automatically think there's something odd about somebody that has that desire. Right. So now, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, does this relate to natural theology? It it does indirectly. So natural theology uh, is is um, usually refers to uh, those things that we can know about God uh, through natural reason and. Natural law is usually linked to it insofar as uh, natural law, at least according to Aquinas and other Christian thinkers, depends on the existence of God. Hmm. So that actually, you, you raised the question about divine law uh, a moment ago. And so I want to sort of answer that in light of what I said about natural law. So Aquinas says there are certain things that we can know about the human good that teaches us about how we ought to act. But the, the, the fact is that there's other things about human nature that come into play when we make moral judgments, and those are called the passions. So, because one of the difficulties that people have with natural law is, well, wait a second, you know, they, they think people don't agree about a lot of issues, right? So if, in fact, we can know the moral law naturally, why is it that people disagree about issues like abortion or the nature of marriage or welfare policy, or you know, so you can just name the, the you name the, the uh, an issue, and there's different views. And Aquinas actually has no problem with that because his 
what he's trying to articulate is uh, he's trying to explain why human civilizations seem to have a lot in common into the, in, in, insofar as the way they order their lives. So uh, it may be, to, to use, the, the, use an example from the book, uh, you, the, exa- the, the issue of abortion, I think, is, is a nice illustration. You have people that have deep disagreements on abortion. You have some folks that uh, believe that abortion ought to be permitted uh, for most or uh, or entirety of, or at least large portions of pregnancy, and then you have those that oppose abortion. And they, now you would think, you know, just superficially, well, those are radically different positions. But the natural law thinker says, well, act, we have to ask the question: Why do people actually disagree on abortion? And it turns out their disagreement is really over the question of who and who is not a member of the human community. That is, to use the language of some philosophers, what is a person? What sort of beings have moral status? And uh, there are some philosophers that argue that fetuses, unborn human beings, do not have moral status, so therefore abortion is morally permissible. And others who argue that abortion um, is not permissible because unborn human beings have moral status. Right, so you have these two different factions, right? But their disagreement isn't over the principle: is it wrong to kill innocent persons without justification? The dispute is over what counts as an innocent person. And so, if you look at the way in which um, we argue about different sorts of cultural issues, it is remarkable how much people actually agree with each other. Right? They're always trying to, in some way, justify their claims in light of, let's say, moral beliefs that we think are actually deeper. Right? So, so you don't have people arguing, let's, let's kill innocent persons. Right? <laughs> Nobody argues for that, but what they argue is that, no, well, this person doesn't, or this human being is not a, a, doesn't have moral status. I mean, even with debates over, let's say, uh, uh, capital punishment or whether a war is just or debates about pacifism, right? Uh, it's not that we don't understand why people hold those views. We do understand why they hold those views, right? We may think that they're mistaken. We may think that they they put the, um, uh, let's say, the moral principles in the wrong order uh, or, or something along those lines, but we don't think that uh, their views are utterly crazy, Right, uh, we, we, and we may think that their views are maybe borderline, but we don't. But we don't. We 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 can understand why they hold the views they do. And Aquinas himself brings up cases like this. He says, you know, uh, you know, he brings up the German barbarians. He goes, you know, the, for them, uh, theft was considered to be okay. And he says, well, yeah, that's true, uh, but uh, they still don't think you should steal their things. <laughs> Right? So, so, so even they couldn't fully suppress the natural law, right? So, so for Aquinas, it isn't the natural law, and I think this is a mistake that, that some people have about it. They think that the natural law is sort of like a kind of you can sort of come up, in, you know, with like you know twenty rules about life from just reading a philosophy textbook or sort of reflecting on human nature. And what Aquinas says is that, well, you're going to come up with some basic first principles, but you're going to also be influenced by your emotions. You're going to be influenced by your culture and your society, but you can't fully eradicate the natural law. 
it's going to come out in one way or another. Well, I think this relates to, to two questions in your book. One is that you make, you make the point in your book that you say of, of the book, the, the book is on how the work of Aquinas illuminates certain contemporary questions that are important to many serious believers across a variety of Christian traditions, including Protestant and Catholic. And apropos of, of how you relate the natural law to Protestants and Catholics, you write, you have two interesting um, imaginary characters that are very funny and effective. You, you refer to two as the frustrated fellow traveler and the solo scripturist. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I, I just want to say of the, you're right of the fellow frustrated fellow traveler. And he was the one that I, I was most intrigued by. He said, you say, you say of the frustrated that of this character, the natural laws, frustrated fellow, frustrated fellow travelers, dis- disappointed when he discovers that many otherwise rational secular compatriots find natural law arguments unpersuasive for positions with which he's sympathetic. So he concludes that natural law has failed in some way. Would you please, and I, I'd like you to ask, to explain, why is this person demanding, does, is this person demanding something of, of natural law that's not really expected to do in the first place? And what might a natural law theorist and Catholic intellectual, like such as Robert P. George, say to the frustrated fellow traveler? Yeah, the frustrated fellow traveler is actually my colleague, Alan Jacobs. <laughs> He's an English professor. He's a really good friend. And, uh, you know, he, he agrees. He's actually a C.S. Lewis scholar and, and, and thinks he actually believes in natural law. I think the reason why the frustrated f- fellow traveler thinks the way he or she does is that Oftentimes, natural law is presented by Christians in the public square as a kind of response to the challenge often made by defenders of, of political liberalism. Now, what, what I mean by political liberalism is not uh, what we ordinarily think about in, the pub, in our politics. It, it refers to a particular way of thinking about the public square that was made famous by a philosopher named John Rawls. And John Rawls said that that if you enter the public square, uh, you have if you're a religious believer or if you hold any sort of contested worldview, you should be you, you're required to offer public reasons for your beliefs because you aren't justified in coercing your fellow citizens unless you can give them reasons that they would find reasonable given their own worldview. And so sometimes natural law thinkers come in and they say, we have our public reason, and it's the natural law. And so what happens is that you know, this is what we discover is that people are not persuaded by those arguments. And so people like my friend Alan say, well, natural law is no good then. <laughs> it doesn't sort of answer the political liberal objection. My response is that I don't think that's what natural law was ever intended to do. Uh, when Aquinas is writing in the Middle Ages, and he wasn't writing, uh, he wasn't t- talking about natural law as a sort of answer, a kind of non-theological answer to skeptics. He was simply giving a description of what he believes human beings are in fact like, right? Because this is that that, that it, it's not surprising that we find throughout all human civilizations certain goods to which our public institutions are ordered. Now, are there disagreements? To be sure there are. Uh, but the, the, the disagreements never 
go to the point of denying those first principles of the natural law. And this is why you need, according to Aquinas, divine law or special revelation, uh, because human beings sometimes act out of self-interest, out of passion. They are formed in a way by their culture, which actually makes it difficult for them to be good. And that's why we need uh, scripture and the church, according to Aquinas. And so for Thomas, uh, his claims about natural law are actually quite modest. He, he doesn't treat the natural law as a kind of answer to, um, you know, challenges by contemporary politically liberal philosophers. He, they don't exist in the 13th century, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's, I, I think the frustrated fellow traveler is expecting too much of natural law. And I don't entirely blame the frustrated fellow traveler because there are certain natural law thinkers that I think do treat natural law uh, in this way. Uh, I think they, they're a little bit too ambitious. Well, how does natural law differ from just basic morality or the golden rule? I, I'm, I'm always a little, it just seems like, well, people, people should behave in a upright and compassionate fashion. Is that, I, is that I, unique to natural? I mean, that's how is natural law innovative in that respect? I think that's just another way to articulate the natural law, the sort of ordinary sentiments and inclinations that people have. Uh, so, for example, if, if I were to, let's say, to use a, an example I use in class, I, I ask my students, uh, I ask my students who their parents are. How do they know who their parents are? <laughs> and and they, 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 you know, they give, you know, they give this sort of, they sometimes appeal to biological reasons, right? You know, they begat me or whatever. <laughs> they want to, uh, but, then, but then I ask them, well, why should they have... Why should those two people, obviously some of my students are adopted, so this would obviously include adopted uh, students as well, but why would those two people have a particular authority over you rather than like two people down the street? And it's the fact that I asked the question, I mean, they're, they're sort of bothered by it because it's a, they've never been asked it, right? It's, a, it's actually in some ways a difficult question to answer. You ultimately have to appeal to the fact that there's something almost fundamental about parents having a natural obligation to care for their children and children having a natural obligation to obey their parents, right? It's difficult to figure out, well, how much further can we go to prove that, right? So the natural law says that's just fundamental to who we are. And we really can't go any further. Like you mentioned compassion. Uh, if let's say I were to, uh, let's say uh, there's a, let's say there's a protest down in downtown Waco and I go up to one of the protesters and I say, why are you protesting? Well, I'm protesting against police brutality. Why are you doing that? Cause I think it's wrong. Why do you think it's wrong? And they say, well, police shouldn't do that. Why shouldn't they do that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and they, and they would just say, probably at some point go, because, right? Because, so the natural law thinker, the natural law is simply saying there's a point at which it's just basic. And so if, if you know, to use another illustration I've used in class, I'll, 
you know, we'll talk about a particular moral, public moral issue, and my students will simply resort at some point, and this is perfectly okay, and it, it, we all do this, they'll say, it's just fair. And if I ask the next question, why should you be fair? They just, there's really no answer other than simply saying it's the right thing to do. But then you'd say, well, why should you do the right thing? I mean, to ask the question, why should you do the right thing? Uh, I mean, I think that they're the, comp- that the conversation's over, right? I mean, the natural law says that, that the idea that you should do the right thing is basic to who we are. And to, it's almost, in a way, unanswerable. Mm. It's like if you go to an optometrist and the optometrist says, um, uh, you need glasses so you can see 2020. And you say, well, why? <laughs> well, because that's, that's the way your eyes were made. Well, why were they made that way? And, and you just, that's it. You can't go, <laughs> uh, the, you can't go any further. And the, and the natural law is simply trying to, when Aquinas talks about natural law, he's trying to articulate this kind of fundamentality to the way in which human beings are ordered. Well, that's very, that's a very good explication of a very important movement in, in or school of thought. And I'd like to now return to the question of natural theology, because in the book, of, uh, you write that Protestants seem to get Aquinas very, or I'm sorry, get the Catholic Church very wrong on natural theology. Could you explain a little about what, what where the differences are and what just a sort of potted history of natural theology? Yeah, so natural theology is, is simply the, uh, uh, the sort of sub-discipline within theology that uh, deals with arguments about God that are not derived from special revelation like the Bible or the Quran. So uh, example of natural theology is the arguments for God's existence, uh, some of which I alluded to earlier. And now there are some uh, evangelical theologians that have argued that uh, because Aquinas and the Catholic Church call those things that we can know through natural theology as the, the preambles of faith, they argue that they seem to believe that the church and Aquinas are teaching that one must have a rational argument for God's existence in order to have faith. So what they envision is something like this. Uh, an individual is, let's say, told about uh, Christianity and they want to believe, uh, but in order for them to take that first step of belief, they have to you know, understand and grasp a philosophical argument for God's existence. And uh, evangelical theologians like Carl Henry and Colin Brown argue that this is uh, inconsistent with what scripture teaches, um, that we are in fact saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And if you've got to argue your way into belief, then that is not, this is no longer grace. And what I argue in the book is that's exactly what Aquinas says too. Does this, relate, does this relate to the term implicit faith? Well, that has to do with um, uh, the, um, uh, the claim on the part of, of some that you need to sort of know your every theological belief 
in order to have true faith. And so and the illustration I use in the book is, is, is of my late grandmother, who uh, was a devout Catholic who read uh, or uh, affirmed the, the Nicene Creed every Sunday, uh, which includes in it the phrase that the uh, son is consubstantial with the father. My grandmother, who I love dearly, probably I would, I would bet she didn't know what consubstantial meant. Uh, consubstantial is a technical philosophical term that has to do with what counts as a singular being or, or substance. Uh, so what Aquinas says is that believers don't have to actually be theologians in order to believe. <laughs> they, but as long as they have faith in uh, or know of people that know these beliefs, all they have to do is assent to them. And we actually do this in ordinary life, right? I mean, we're not all lawyers, right? We don't know all the revised statutes of our state, and yet we're still held accountable for having to obey those laws, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, so implicit faith refers to uh, the, f- uh, the faith that a person assents to for which they don't have, let's say, sophisticated knowledge. Well, apropos of sophisticated knowledge, I think one one difficulty for non-Catholics to understand is there's so many kinds of grace. And I was I was making notes as I was reading your book and I wrote down habitual grace, cooperating grace, mm. operating grace. Yeah. And I thought, gracious me, there's so many types of grace. Is there one particular type of grace that that Aquinas focused on as as crucial? Well, were they all actually all grace is the same, but it just has different operations for Aquinas. So the grace that you receive in baptism uh, can get manifested in different ways. That's called sanctifying grace. Mm-hmm. So when, what, he, what he's trying to do with cooperating and operating grace is this. Um, uh, he wants to explain why is it that St. Paul says that we are saved by grace, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. But at the same time, we actually are held culpable for acting and not acting. And we're actually told in both the Gospels and in the epistles that we will receive rewards. So how do you sort of reconcile rewards and the fact that Jesus says that the difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did and didn't do? So how, how can you say that we're not say that we're saved by grace and at the same time we're held culpable? And so Aquinas says, well, the initial grace that we receive at baptism uh, allows us to, to that, that uh, changes us and allows us to cooperate with God. So God sort of gives us the ability to act in grace. And it is with him, uh, it is through his power that we act. And it's a mystery. So in a way, I mean, for, for the Catholic, the incarnation is the same, is, is a kind of uh, uh, manifestation of this, this kind of mystery, right? So uh, Jesus of Nazareth is both God and man. He's not, he's not a combination of both in the sense that he's, half man and half God, or an amalgamation of both, but he has both natures. 
right? So God is acting through him, and yet he is also acting as a human being. And so when the Catholic talks about grace working through the human being, in a way, it's, it's a way in which we participate in the divine life. And so even though we are rewarded, it's ultimately God, God gets the credit for it, right? So God is so powerful under the Catholic view. He's, his omnipotence is so great that he's able to act through free creatures without compromising their freedom. So, so it's almost like God is a novelist, right? So think about, you know, this is not a, the, the best, you know, all analogies are fail because they're analogies, right? Um, it reminds me actually when I, my, my, my late mother-in-law, um, uh, she would, uh, whenever we would have arguments sometimes, kind of playful arguments, and she would say, um, she goes, you're comparing apples and oranges. And I say, well, sometimes it's okay to compare, compare apples and oranges. If the question is, what is the best fruit by which to pelt the speaker? Right. That, so, 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 so sometimes, it, you know, sometimes it, analogies depend on the context, right? So, so the analogy of a novel, of God as a novelist, right? So, so, uh, you can read a novel and uh, you can read an account of maybe even better example would be an historian, right? So an historian writes about how people act. Uh, he doesn't have complete control over how they acted. Uh, but the account that he gives is an account of people acting freely. And so in a way, under the, the Catholic view, and obviously there are other Christians that hold this view as well, just not Catholics, that God is his omnipotence is such that he is able to work through free creatures without compromising their liberty in the same way that let's say an author is able through his novels to have, to have uh, uh, characters act freely, even though in a way uh, they could not have acted otherwise. Hmm. Does this relate to your, uh, your use of, of analogy? I, I guess it's analogy or, or figure of speech. You say Aquinas is as concerned with getting heaven into us as us getting into heaven. That's right. That's right. So there isn't. Um, uh, there's. There's not a kind of the, the. This is it. This is the thing for Aquinas. The bottom line for him is for us to be in union with God, and we can't fully get it in this life because of the distance between humanity and the divine nature. But we can get a little bit of a glimpse of it, and that life involves us being conformed to the image of Christ uh, more and more. Uh, it isn't just about getting, you know, you know, where we're going to wind up, right? At, at the, obviously, where we wind up is important. But it's also, conversion is something that just doesn't involve a kind of um, changing your set of beliefs, but requires an internal change of the person as a consequence of God's grace. So, uh, yeah, there, 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 it's it's not just uh, you know you know the question that one often gets. Um, I, I sometimes uh, uh, have some of our, our Catholic students at Baylor come up to me and say, you know, I had a an evangelical student asked me, uh, if I died right now, would I know that I would, would you know that you're in heaven? How do I answer that as a Catholic? And, uh, and the Catholic answer is that uh, 
we trust in God's grace and that we shouldn't be presumptuous, right? Uh, so it's, uh, but it's, it's a, it, 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 but the, the question that is, the way that question is asked, it's almost as if uh, the Christian faith is simply a matter of reading a prayer and you're instantly, you got your ticket to heaven. Now, and I think it's kind of a, you know, I, I think that is a kind of caricature of uh, the way in which even the Protestant reformers thought. So I don't want listeners to get the impression that's what I believe all evangelical Protestants think. But in terms of sort of popular evangelicalism, that's the way in which uh, evangelism takes place, right? You know, just say this prayer, uh, you, you know, and uh, you will be, uh, you'll make it into heaven. And uh, for Aquinas says, yeah, making it into heaven is, 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 is where we're trying to, to go. But being in heaven is being in union with God, what he calls the beatific vision. And, but in order to be in union with God, you have to actually be transformed. And, to be, and you're transformed by his grace. And you do this by allowing him to work through you. And so there is an element of human free will involved with this but it's a will that is moved by grace. Well, at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with Francis J. Beckwith, author of the book, Never Doubt Thomas, the Catholic Aquinas as Evangelical and Protestant. Well, Frank, you've just been discussing heaven, and I'd just like to spend a few moments on, on an area that I didn't realize that Catholics believe and Protestants don't because I'm not a very was not brought up in any faith at all, so except Unitarianism, which doesn't really count. <laughs> but um, uh, you talk about that that Catholics believe in purgatory and Protestants do not. And how does that relate to? Is that a stumbling block for Protestants with Aquinas, or is it just do they regard that as they just can't even address him for holding such views, or is that just a minor quirk of his in their in their eyes or well no it's it, it's a it's a belief held by the catholic church that that there is uh, a place uh that's not heaven in which uh, an individual soul is cleansed so that they can be worthy of heaven uh and it's called purgatory and the idea of purgatory can actually be found very deep in church history uh augustine talks about it. Uh, most people are aware of purgatory from Dante's Divine Comedy. The, the second book, uh, uh, the Purgatorio, is about uh, purgatory. And a lot of our views of purgatory have been uh, influenced deeply by Dante's imagery, uh, which is uh, not official Catholic doctrine. It's just simply his way of describing in literal terms uh, this sort of in-between place. Um, so uh, for, uh, uh, for Aquinas, as, as with um, the Catholic Church itself, uh, most people are, are not going to uh, die in a perfected state or in a state of total uh, uh, cleansing of one's uh, sins and, and sinful inclinations. And so one must go to a place called purgatory where one goes through a kind of of um, uh, reformation, a kind of sanctification, and I, I talk a little bit about this in, in in the book, in the in the chapter on justification, uh, when dealing with uh, uh, 
were comments made by my friend Jerry Walls, who teaches at Houston Baptist University, who is actually a Protestant who believes in purgatory. Uh, and, and there are Protestants that do. C.S. Lewis believed in purgatory. Um, and it is, I think, in some ways a difficult issue, uh, partly because it's not explicitly asserted in Scripture. And if you, one holds to a sola scriptura view, uh, it becomes you know, difficult to justify. Uh, Catholics justify it by inference. They believe that there are passages of Scripture that allude to a kind of uh, posthumous uh, need for one to be, to be cleansed. And also the fact that if you go deep in church history, uh, the idea that one ought to pray for the dead so that they can be worthy of heaven and also uh, some of the comments made by Augustine and other early church fathers. On the other hand, though, there's a problem for Protestants. Uh, uh, they realize that we that very few of us die at a uh, in a kind of state of pure sanctification, and they also realize that one cannot be in the presence of God and not be holy. So. You know how do how do they deal with it? And I was actually on a panel eight years ago at the uh, Evangelical Theological Society on this question. And I was I did not really realize this until I was in this panel that two, there were there were two uh, Protestant uh, scholars, actually three, including and then there was myself. And and the two that Jerry Walls was one of the others, and he defended purgatory as I did. The other two didn't, but it was interesting. They realized the problem, uh, and uh, each of them came up with their own uh, way of thinking through this issue. So uh, it is a stumbling block to a lot of Protestants, especially evangelical Protestants that have a tr- uh, that come out of a kind of revivalist tradition that is a tradition of, of immediate conversion. And, uh, and so the idea that there has to be a place in between strikes them as being inconsistent with uh, the efficacy of the grace of God to save the soul. Why would you need that if if it was if you, if God's grace was sufficient? And the Catholic answer is that even purgatory is grace as well. Hmm. Well, we're getting towards the end of the interview, and I've got several more questions that I wanted to ask. I hope you have a few more minutes. So sure. I, I wanted I wanted to ask um, in 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 the book you you it, it, it's it's you you engage very respectfully but firmly with Protestants and, and tactfully but sternly tell them what they get wrong. And one of the you mentioned earlier the Council of Trent. And could you tell us what what Protestants are getting wrong with vis-a-vis Aquinas and the Council of Trent and what was the Council I got uh, my notes say the Council of Trent fifteen forty five and to fifteen sixty three. And then you mention in the book the catechism of the Catholic Church that was promulgated in the nineteen nineties, which seems there's centuries between those documents, and I just wonder why was why was the Catholic Church still wrestling with something so fundamental as late as 1990s? Okay, yeah, well, the the, the, the 1990s, the Catechism that came out in the in the 1990s was the uh, uh, was the result of 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 John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, ordering its uh, creation and publication. He wanted. Uh, Catholics and non-Catholics to have one place where they could look to that would be a definitive, uh, you know, summary of Catholic doctrine. There had been, 
I think the, 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 the last cat official catechism that had published actually was the Trent Catechism uh, in the uh, 16th century. And over the years, there have been numerous encyclicals, a couple of church councils. And so he wanted something uh, post-Vatican II that sort of summarized Catholic teaching. So that summary about justification in the catechism wasn't something new that the church had been wrestling with. It was just a way for the church to sort of summarize it so that summarize the doctrine so that Catholics and non-Catholics could sort of go to one place to find it. Now, the Council of Trent itself, uh, as you mentioned, uh, is, uh, is middle of the 16th century, uh, is the result of the Reformation. Uh, the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation uh, was having problems. Uh, there was corruption. There was, uh, uh, there was not uh, any... Uh, there were problems with the education of priests. Uh, there was, as I mentioned, corruption in the church, and it had to get its act together. And it took about 30 years for the church to finally get the Council of Trent together, and it had to deal with many of the issues raised by uh, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and those in the um, – the, um, the radical uh, branch of the Reformation. And so the Council of Trent is essentially a response to the challenges of, of those Protestant reformers. And when I talk about the Council of Trent in that chapter, what I'm doing there is showing that what the Council of Trent says about the doctrine of justification is not different from what Aquinas says about it, what Augustine says about it, and what the modern catechism says about it. And the reason why I, I, I spend a lot of time doing that is that the thinkers that I'm responding to are what I call friends of Aquinas who think that Aquinas's view of the doctrine of justification is inconsistent with what the Catholic Church teaches at both Trent and in its modern catechism. And what I argue is that it's actually quite seamless, that they are not saying anything different. Now, one reason why I think Aquinas probably seems to them to be different is that Aquinas is not writing in response to challenges to the Catholic view by people that have left the Catholic Church. So there isn't the sort of polemical tone that you get in the Council of Trent. So when, when thinkers like uh, John Gerstner and R.C. Sproul and Norm Geisler, three of whom I, I, I respond to in the book, they're reading Aquinas uh, through uh, – they're, they're, they're seeing that, that he's not polemical, uh, that he's writing in a way that uh, is very congenial to their own intuitions, but they also really love him. Uh, yeah, I, think that, I think that was fascinating in your book that came across that they – it's like they want to embrace him to their bosoms. And you're saying, that's wonderful, but you're not going about it. You're misreading him while you're doing that. And that's a problem. It's something, you know, I, I actually have not, I guess when I was younger, I didn't appreciate. And I realize it now that even, you know, I think we gravitate to people that we love. <laughs> uh, yeah, you use, you use a wonderful term. You refer to them as smitten scholars. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> So, and I think that's, I mean, I find that, uh, I find myself once in a while, you know, uh, reading somebody or, or watching somebody's video on YouTube and, and, and really liking them. And then, and then 
realizing, oh, actually, I disagree with them. That's too bad. <laughs> you know, uh, I had an experience like this in, in college. I, I was reading somebody, and uh, I forget who it was. It was a philosopher that I really liked, and one of my professors was appalled by it. He said, I can't believe you like that thinker. And because that would make you an X, I, I, something like an existentialist or some other, I forget exactly what it was, but I thought to myself, well, I guess that's what I am, right? <laughs> so, so I do think that, you know, what I, I think what, what, what these three guys saw in Aquinas was somebody that really impressed them intellectually and could really help their evangelical faith. Uh, because all three of them grew up in traditions that didn't have very strong intellectual roots. And so they were drawn to Aquinas and they saw somebody that could really help and illuminate their thinking. And I think it affected the way they read him elsewhere. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I better, I better end the interview now because I think we're having a little bit of technical trouble. Oh. At, 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 or I'm not sure I, I, I'm, I'm getting a little audio feedback, but well, I'll try this last question, if you don't mind. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting when you were referring to how much they love um, Aquinas was I referred to, I heard a female philosopher on a podcast referred to him as cuddly, which I thought was kind of sweet. But um, I've taken up a lot of your time. And I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the New Books Network. And that is, what are you working on now? Wow. Uh Lots of things. <laughs> I, 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 I've got a couple of things uh, uh, coming out. Um, so I, I, they're technically not, I'm not really working on them. I've still got to get the galleys. I've got a, a chapter coming out in a, in a book called Dissident Philosophers. Uh, it's a book, a kind of, it's a kind of a collection of uh, quasi autobiographies by philosophers who are kind of off the beaten path. So, you know, I identify as a, a conservative Catholic philosopher and there, there aren't a lot of us. So I was invited to contribute to the book. There are other thing, uh, philosophers in there that are, are not religious who happen to be, let's say libertarians and others. And so I was invited to contribute. So I, I just completed that and uh, I've got, a um, uh, an article coming out in the Journal of Medicine and Philosophy uh, on uh, a, a book that was published forty years ago, and it was it's a special issue of the journal honoring that book. And the book is called Principles of Biomedical Ethics by James Childress and Tom Beecham. It's become a kind of standard text in medical ethics, and I was honored to be invited uh, to be one of I think a half a dozen uh, professors who have who have been influenced by the book to, to write a, a kind of critical essay a, about a portion of the book. I co-authored it with one of my former students, Allie Thornton, and that's going to be coming out soon. Uh, it's great timing. It's great timing because coronavirus is, the coronavirus has put medical ethics on the radar screen. Like very rarely have we seen. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I, and I, uh, I've got a project I'd like to work on that uh, you can say it's kind of in right now, uh, in the, the thinking stage, I've published an article on this question, and that is the question of, is, religious, is religion special? And it's, it, it, it's a project that addresses a question that's been raised by certain philosophers of law about religious liberty. 
they have questions. That is also very, very relevant today because that's very much in the news. Yeah. So, so these philosophers, what they argue is that 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 we shouldn't treat religion, at least con- we shouldn't treat re- conventional religion as special under our laws. We should treat uh, religious belief uh, like we do, let's say other people's firmly held beliefs that they, tr- so, so in other words, a person could be a kind of secularist and if they hold views, let's say about the nature of the universe that are, let's say parallel to religious beliefs, those beliefs should be accorded the same kind of respect under the law as conventional religious beliefs. Uh, and so uh, the reason is interesting. I, I don't actually know where I st- Stand on this, so I, I mean, I, I tend to be sympathetic to this, but I also am a little bit leery of it because I do think that there are aspects of religious belief that don't have a secular parallel, and and I'm and I and I think that it may be a mistake to treat all religious beliefs in this fashion. So, so that's a project that I, I'm actually going to put in for a research leave next year to to work on that. That sounds really fascinating. I, I, I think that's interesting because uh, some some intellectuals argue, interesting Catholic intellectuals, again, like Robert George, argue that, that secular humanism is, in a way, its own religion. It has its own pres- articles of faith and so forth. And it's kind of an, inter- it's an interesting question. We'll see what you say about it. And yeah. with that... Oh, I'm sorry, you go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, you know, I, 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 Robbie George is a good friend, and, and his book, Clash of Orthodoxies, is where he, he presents this. And as I said, I'm very sympathetic to that, but I wonder if uh, what happens if we – can we translate everything in religion uh, to, uh, to a secular uh, view? I think you can with these sort of deeper philosophical issues, but I'm not sure about things like the sacraments or – uh, you know, liturgical aspects of religion. I, I'm not sure you can do that, but well, we'll see. We'll see what you say when in when when that appears. Okay. <laughs> so, so thank you very much. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Francis J. Beckwith, author of Never Doubt Thomas: The Catholic Aquinas as Evangelical and Protestant. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye bye. <laughs>